sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be marking the 11th anniversary of the execution of Troy Davis, also going to be noting the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Martial Law in the Philippines. And it's Friday, which means we have our weekly segment, the Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, let me tell you the story about Fat Leonard, whose name is actually Leonard Francis, but he's called Fat Leonard because fella is about 400 pounds. Fat Leonard has been arrested in Venezuela after escaping house arrest in San Diego. See, Fat Leonard was on house arrest in San Diego after pleading guilty to orchestrated what is being called one of the biggest bribery scandals in U.S. military history. What did he do? Well... Francis offered prostitution services, luxury hotels, cigars, gourmet meals, and more than $500,000 in cash in bribes to U.S. Navy officials and others to help his Singapore-based ship servicing company, Glenn Defense Marine Asia Limited, or GDMA. Though the arrest of Fat Leonard is making waves in corporate media just recently, the corruption he carried out has actually been known to the U.S. Navy for at least a decade. In June 2011, the Economic Crimes Department of the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, or NCIS, yes, it's a real thing, investigated Francis's company and issued a report in which the very opening paragraph reads, quote, since 2004, there have been numerous allegations GDMA was involved in fraudulent activity to include overcharging the U.S. Navy, threatening competitors and subcontractors, influencing foreign foreign port officials, ghost or incomplete deliveries of goods and services, and corruption of the procurement process, end quote. The report notes that there were actually 10 previous criminal intelligence reports produced and 14 previous investigations initiated, all between 2004 and 2012, but the criminal activity by GDMA was not stopped. Why? Well, according to NCIS because of the vast network of U.S. Navy officials and personnel who were on Francis's payroll who could explain the allegations away, Francis's propensity to reimburse the Navy for charges that were questioned when they couldn't be explained away, and the lack of dedicated and sufficiently trained NCIS economic crimes agents in the ports where the grift was being carried out. So despite the U.S. Navy knowing that GDMA was ripping them off, Fat Leonard's company was awarded contracts worth $200 million to service ships at ports he controlled in Southeast Asia, only to then turn around and overcharge the Navy around $35 million for some of those services. And after two decades of those contracts being renewed, they are estimated to have actually run into the billions of dollars. 
But the Navy officials didn't feel bad about their involvement in ripping off the Navy. Oh, no, not at all. Officers involved in the scheme gave themselves catchy-sounding names like the Lion's King Harem, the Brotherhood, the Wolf Pack, kind of signaling that they belong to a little secret elite club within the Navy where members get these special high-end perks in their efforts to recruit others into the grift. And the grift for the Navy officials was really lucrative with not just cash and prostitutes, but things like whiskey, Cuban cigars, Spanish suckling pigs, that's interesting, Kobe beef, designer handbags, I guess for the wives and girlfriends, Lady Gaga tickets, also I guess for the wives and girlfriends, Gucci fashion shows, definitely for the wives and girlfriends, Finally, in 2013, the feds got involved, looped in Interpol, and the investigation focused on capitals and ports across the Pacific, including Singapore, Tokyo, Bangkok, and Manila. During the probe, multiple U.S. Navy officials and Fat Leonard himself were finally arrested. Then in 2015, Fat Leonard pled guilty to bribery and fraud charges and helped prosecutors convict 33 of 34 defendants, among them 24 Navy officers. Of those convicted are four Navy officers who were convicted in trials and 29, including naval officials and contractors who pled guilty. When the Washington Post published a story on this scandal in 2016, they noted that the damage to the Navy could match the toll from the tailhook scandal of the early 1990s when 14 admirals were reprimanded or forced to resign over an epic outbreak of sexual assault at a Naval Aviators Convention. But there's been no damage to the Navy over this scandal because did you know anything about it? Have you heard anything about it in the media? Of course not. Because unlike the media in the 1990s, corporate media these days, they're not going to broadcast news that makes the imperialist U.S. military look bad. And that is a serious problem since this scandal exposes not just the ease with which U.S. military officials can be bought, but it casts yet another scathingly hot spotlight on the defense contractor system and the rampant fiscal irresponsibility and waste that the U.S. military is allowed to get away with with no accountability. See, if you and I cheat on our taxes, we got to pay, and the government makes sure we do. If the military pays billions of our money to a thieving defense contractor, who gets that money back? Meanwhile, both political parties cry poverty about housing, health care, and education for the people. Interestingly, one retired Navy officer who worked with Francis said to the Washington Post in that 2016 article, quote, the Soviets couldn't have penetrated us better than Leonard Francis. He's got people skills that are off the scale. He can hook you so fast that you don't see it coming. At one time, he had infiltrated the entire leadership line, and that is of the Navy's storied 7th Fleet. He said the KGB could not have done what he did. Proving once again, at least to me, that Russia is not and never was our enemy, but capitalist greed? Yeah, that's the problem. Always has been, and it will ultimately be the downfall of this empire. And just a quick note to let you know that you won't be hearing me regularly for the next few weeks here on By Any Means Necessary. I'll be focusing on training to do hemodialysis at home as I navigate this whole kidney disease journey. 
I've been approved for a kidney transplant and I'm doing all the things required to prepare for that, but I'll be on dialysis until that happens. So after a few weeks of hemodialysis training, I will be back in front of the mic with Sean Blackman and our crew here at the show, snarky and raging against this empire as ever. Until then, friends and comrades, a luta continua. The struggle continues, but victoria acerta. Victory is certain. Follow Luke Mon Nation on patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Kalanji Jamachanga, an author, filmmaker, community organizer, co-host of the Renegade Culture Podcast, co-founder of Black Power Media, and founder of the FTP Movement. Kalanji, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, man. Always an honor. How are you doing? Doing well, Kalanji, and I assure you the honor is all ours. And we recently marked the 11th anniversary of uh, the execution of Troy Anthony Davis, who was uh, killed by Georgia, of course, here in the U.S., uh, still with a lot of doubts and serious one, I think, uh, surrounding his uh, conviction. Now, uh, Davis was arrested back in 1989 for the murder of an off-duty police officer named uh, Mark Allen McPhail, uh, and I believe he was initially uh, sentenced to death in 1991 and uh, then ultimately being executed in 2011. And so, Kalanji, I was hoping you could help us understand more about uh, the Troy Davis case, what really happened there, which is a lot. And, And I tend to think that this is that the Troy Davis case is one of the most significant sort of incidents to take place in that period, not long before uh, the outbreak of the movement for black lives. And so what should people know about the case of Troy Davis and what that example really represents? Yeah. Uh, yeah. First and foremost, uh, you know, to your point, uh, many of us believe that the Troy Davis case, the momentum, the movement and the, uh, uh, the, the whole back to the street mission, you know, the things that we saw with the uh, the Freddie Gray and, and, and the Mike Browns and all this, the Trayvon Martins, this is what catapulted that. This is this is the beginning of, uh, the, of the return of this type of movement and folks who are organizing and mobilizing on an international level. I say all that to say, I started off working with the uh, Troy Davis campaign through his family. Um, and, you know, it, it's a case which is one of the most saddest cases um, that I've ever come across. And I, I take it very personally because I was uh, deep inside of it. But, um, you know, it's a case where the police, they coerced so many different uh, witnesses. I think there were nine witnesses altogether. Uh, seven of them recanted their story. The eighth witness said that the shooter was definitely right-handed. Troy was left-handed. And the ninth witness is the person that we all believe to be the shooter, Sylvester Ray Coles. Um, as you mentioned, a police officer was uh, killed uh, by the name of McPhail down in the Savannah area. And, um, you know, Troy was railroaded. They didn't have anyone to to um, get. So, as they say, the first N-word that they could come across was the one that uh, 
that they that they used. Um, Developed and established a serious relationship with not only Troy but with his uh, entire family, and I organized down in Savannah, making efforts to uh, free him. And you know, I got the opportunity to just see the area that he was from. We interviewed you know, his, his former teachers and coaches and all of that. And they all spoke to his great character. There was no one that we came across that had anything bad to say about Troy Davis. In fact, we were out there petitioning and even a police officer, a black cop, he walks up to me and he says, listen, man, you know, I know Troy didn't do that. You know, he said, uh, you know, I've been knowing Troy all his life, man. You know, this is bogus, whatever, so on and so forth. I said, yes. Yeah. So I talked to him for a few minutes, and I said, uh, well, can we get you to sign the petition? He said, oh, I can't do that. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, with that, that part I can't do it. He, he's almost running. I have never, I've never called the N-word to my face until I was in Savannah, Georgia, uh, organizing. You know what I'm saying? I was told we we freed the, freed the slaves. What else you Wow. You know what I'm saying? So this is the type of environment that we dealt with. I know I'm all over the place because I'm trying to figure out exactly, uh, you know, what part of it that, I mean, what 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 about this case that that, 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 that you all feel was missing or you would like some uh, insight on? Yeah, I don't, I don't think you're all over the place at all because who Troy Davis was and the fact that uh, even though he, he wasn't willing to put his name uh, and, and honestly, his reputation on the line uh, to secure Troy's innocence or at least to back up Troy's innocence and to save his life. You know, the the, the cop that you said uh, knew that he was innocent, wasn't willing to do that. That is important. It's just as important as the, the evidence that didn't exist against Troy Davis and how it came out in court that uh, the evidence was flimsy and, and witnesses recounted. So tell us a little bit more about how there was really no evidence that that convicted, that could have been used to truly convict Troy Davis of this crime. Right. So to your point, yes, there was no physical or scientific evidence, period. It's not all they had was the collaboration of the witnesses. And I want to point out that I had the opportunity to interview a couple of those witnesses because we weren't just, we organized before we even get involved in a case, we do a people's people's uh, investigation. We don't just jump into something because they say such and such did this or, or, or we free such and such, you know, just on the strength of the state because we don't want pie thrown in our face. Right. So I went out there and, um, you know, one of the witnesses I talked to, spoke to, she said, look, man, I was on uh, probation. And they told me that if I didn't, you know, say that I saw Troy, then it, I, I'll get violated. You know what I'm saying? And the the area where she lived, because she lived across the street from the particular uh, place that, where the incident took place, right? So she said, um, you know, she showed us where she lived. I mean, the chance of her even seeing what went on is about as likely as me seeing what you're doing in your home at six o'clock at night. It's not possible. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't possible. The other witness that I interviewed was 16 at the time and they just snatched them up on some petty uh, shoplifting thing. And they said they was going to put it on him if he didn't say that he saw what happened. You know what I mean? So these are witnesses that I heard from uh, out their own mouths. I want to point out that Again, when I said that I was close to the family, whenever I was in Savannah, I'm, I'm, I'm staying at their home. I never stayed at a hotel. 
you know, I'm, I'll be at the fish fries, you know, when they're in Atlanta, I'm going to, uh, his sister Martina, I'm going to her cancer treatment pieces. We would talk, her and I would talk every day, just talking trash. You already know how we talk. She was, she could have been on a morning show. You know what I mean? <laughs> this, you know, this is what we did. So, um, that year I attended three funerals. One was their mother, Miss Virginia Davis. Who, who died literally of a broken heart before Troy was even executed, which I think was a blessing because she didn't have to see her son be executed by this racist state. The second funeral we went to was Troy's funeral himself. And then the third funeral was his sister Martina. And I was actually a pallbearer in her sister, in the sister's funeral. It's one of the worst years of my life because of the fact that we took this case. There was not a, there was an individual that I knew at least in the state of Georgia, that, that ever met me, that, we, that I ever talked to. I don't care if you didn't like me, you didn't care for me. You were you was at one of those Troy Davis rallies. You was at a protest. You was at a demo. You was at something because of the fact that we knew in our spirit, in our hearts, in our souls, that there's no way that this man could have done what they said he did. I used to talk to Troy regularly. And I want to point out, too, that his sister, uh, Martina, she's like, hey, Troy, want to see you, want to get you in. I get, I'm going to get these paperwork to fill out, whatever, so on and so forth. I'm like, all right, bet. You know, I don't like going into the jails, but I'm going to go in there, you know, talk trash to Troy. And uh, she calls me back about a week later. She said, yeah, you know what? She said, I talked to this warden. He called me personally. I said, yeah, she said, uh, she said the only way that uh, you would be able to get in is to witness Troy's execution. You're welcome to come back. So this is what we had to deal with, you know? So of course I didn't go to the execution because I mean, you know, that's not, uh, you know, we, we, we never want to witness, you know, our, our family members die in the battlefield. Yeah. That's, that's pretty incredible. Honestly, I'm not even sure how you describe that outside of uh, calling it, you know, what it is, which is just unconscionable and cruel. And, you know, we started this whole conversation, Kalanji talking about, Troy Davis, the human being and who he was and what he meant to his family, his friends, his loved ones and all those sorts of things. And that's what always, always, always gets lost in these situations. The state decided that uh, Davis was guilty of this murder, not just a murder, but the murder of a cop. And like you say, and we're in and, and not that that goes down well anywhere in this country. But I mean, you're talking about Savannah, Georgia. My God, you know what I mean? And this whole issue that uh, uh, basically any uh, black man will do. And so it, it, it just makes me think about how the state, th- this racist uh, capitalist state always has to demonize and criminalize black people, oppressed people, poor and working people in order to justify the crimes that they want to commit against them. And it honestly seems like the state didn't care uh, uh, about the fact that, you know, there was really no evidence. Um, I was just reading um, uh, a piece, uh, I believe it was from uh, a year or so ago. It was from a year ago, uh, August 2021 in Amnesty International, where uh, the woman uh, who wrote the 
a piece. This is her name happens to be Kim Manning Cooper was talking about how she was in the courtroom and heard all these people recant their testimony against Davis, including one of his childhood friends named uh, uh, Daryl D.D. Collins, who talked about how the police basically pressured him into testifying against Troy. I mean, just I mean, the, the, the human toll that not only this case, but all the cases like it sort of uh, take and just the devastation that it wreaks on uh, families and communities and things like that. I mean, I feel like there's a deeper context there in terms of mass incarceration in the United States and how it is literally, according to the letter of the Constitution, it is literally legal slavery that happens there, right? And so, of course, there's a deep racialized character there. There's a deep class character there that trickles down right to uh, the death penalty itself. And so the way we see this play out, I just think that it sort of shows the fundamentally uh, putative and deadly and vicious character, not only of the uh, the police, the U.S. Uh, court system, but of this society itself. I mean, Troy Davis is someone whose life was stolen and who was stolen from his family and loved ones, basically as an act of catharsis for uh, of the racist state. You know what I mean? And I just feel like that's just so indicative of how this whole system operates in general. Absolutely. Um, I mean, this, this case was so insane. I mean, I, I haven't even touched on the surface of, of just the... The, the the events that that that, that I mean that that uh culminated in and just you know I mean I, I, it, it was such a even talking to you all right now it, it's like it, there there's so many memories and there's so many things racing in my racing through my head I remember before the um, the first day of execution no one knew who Troy Davis was and no one cared. And that includes groups like the NAACP. And that includes groups like the National Action Network, who really jumped on, specifically the National Action Network, jumped on after their first day of execution. Then everybody started coming about the woodworks. But I remember that there was a uh, meeting on on a Monday, and he was scheduled to be executed on that Tuesday. And there ended up being a day of execution. And on that Wednesday, the governor announced that he had gotten uh, a uh, a request from the Pope, from the Vatican, to spare Troy's life and to look deeper into the case. I mean, you had everyone from him to Bishop Tutu to Jimmy Carter, the, the former head of the uh, FBI, William Sessions. I mean, it was like a who's who of folks who would normally be against, you know, Against the case, I mean, you know, against you know whoever, but uh, the, the the governor of Georgia, actually Sonny Perdue, held the letter from the uh, Pope until after Troy was supposed to be executed. The letter was marked for that Monday. It was proven that the letter was received and in his office on that Monday, and he said nothing about it. And then on that Wednesday, he announced it. Not that the Pope could have stopped it, but you know, just the the. Like, they, he didn't even want anyone to even think or know that anyone cared about Troy Davis. You know, so, I mean, it was really a, um, you know, when you talk about blood on the leaves, you know, this is, um, you know, this is an example of uh, Georgia and a modern day election. Yeah, and I want to ask, finally, Kalanji, a, a broad question. 
And that is, you know, as organizers and as movement people, what sort of lessons do you think that we can glean from cases like Troy Davis? And I mean, we're talking about a, a human being here, but like we've been discussing it's a case that just reveals so much, not just about the state of Georgia, but the character of the system, uh, broadly speaking, here in the United States. And so what what do you think we should learn and understand about how to grapple with this system when we see uh, cases like Davis, which is just one of uh, countless injustices that we could name? Well, I think that the first thing that we must always keep in the forefront is that we are living inside of a death machine. We're living inside of a scene, a, a, a machine that manufactures um, death, that manufactures destruction. It's a system that is meant to, it, it, it's, it's never been meant for advancement. It hasn't been, it doesn't even um, uh, have any concern for, for our livelihood, for, our, for us breathing. It, it's an anti-life machine. So that's the first thing. So once you know that you're dealing with a death machine, you know that you can't negotiate with a death machine because this is what the death machine does. death machine doesn't have any type of morals. The death machine doesn't have any type of uh, uh, spirituality. The death machine, you can't appeal to its morality because it's void. So what do we do with this death machine? Okay, we have to, at the very least, put some type of um, stick or, or rock inside of the, the, the spokes. We have to stop the wheels from turning. And we're not going to be able to stop the wheels from turning in a traditional manner. You know, it's not a bicycle. It's not a car. You just can't put something in the road and it's just going to stop. You have to literally be willing to put your... your, your um, I hate to say, put your life on the line. You have to be able to, you know, do what the Harriet Tubman did before us. You have to be willing to take that walk. You got to go where no man has gone before, as they say. You have to really get down and ultimately understand that you cannot reform feces. It's going to be whatever it is, whether it's square, whatever you call it. You know, you can come up with any type of pretty names. That's all it's going to be. You know what I'm saying? So if we're looking for reform, if we're looking for some type of um, morality, then, you know, as my pops would say, if you like it, I love it. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Kalanji, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're discussing 50 years since uh, martial law was declared in the Philippines. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Adrian Bonifacio, national chairperson of Anak Bayan. Adrian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me again. 
Absolutely. And as I mentioned, Adrian, uh, uh, we recently marked the 50th anniversary when dictator Ferdinand Marcos declared uh, martial law in the Philippines. I know there have recently been some uh, actions around this and uh, ongoing um, sort of struggles and connections uh, amongst the Filipinos here in the U.S. around this. But before we even get into how this history impacts the Philippines in the presence, Adrian, could you help us understand sort of the context of what was going on when martial law was declared in the Philippines by Marcos 50 years ago and what that meant for the people of that country in that time? Right. Ferdinand Marcos uh, Sr. declared martial law during a time when there was severe economic crisis in the country. Marcos had been incurring a lot of debt um, the, the economy was crashing, gas prices and inflation were just rising, which, which caused the prices of basic commodities to grow. Uh, so there was huge economic pressure on the people and people were rising up. Uh, there were, uh, months long protests in the beginnings of 1970. We refer to it as the first quarter storm where students, workers, they took the street, uh, and, and really displayed really militant protests to fight for, uh, their rights, both political rights, but even their uh, economic rights. And so it is in that context that there was a burgeoning mass movement to demand social change and uh, including a revolutionary movement to demand social change. And so in that context, Marcos found it easy to declare martial law as a way to, quote unquote, um, secure and defend Philippine democracy, although it did exactly the opposite. Yeah. And I feel like the Philippines now is in a situation where it's still very much grappling with this history because, I mean, the current and recently elected uh, president of the Philippines is the son of uh, Ferdinand Marcos. It's Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr. And as if that wasn't bad enough, uh, the current vice president is Sarah Duterte, who's the daughter of uh, the most recent president, Rodrigo Duterte, another uh, brutal president of the Philippines. And so I'm wondering how we see the legacy of martial law uh, impacting and still sort of rippling through the Philippines and uh, the conditions of its people. Uh, uh, as of today. Yeah, the the impact of martial law is still really felt. I mean, that debt that I talked about, the Filipino people are still paying from the debt of Marcos Sr. Uh, Marcos Jr. just released his new budget. It's the highest amount uh, percent of the budget to be going towards debt servicing. And part of that is the debt of his father. So talk about how that uh, impacts the economic condition of the country when money can't be going towards things like basic social services, healthcare, education, but in, is instead going towards paying off, you know, unfair loan agreements from from decades ago. Uh, there's also the legacy of political repression, as you mentioned. Duterte, the father, uh, Rodrigo Duterte, was a big fan of Marcos Senior's martial law. Uh, looked to it for a lot of inspiration in his own political repression. And now, as you mentioned, it's the children of these two political dynasties, these two fascist dynasties who are in the highest and second highest position of power in the Philippines. 
And it is the ongoing legacy of the uh, Marcos regime that is being continually carried out by his children that uh, is uh, drawing protests today. So can you tell us about the uh, organization against the current uh, government, the son of Ferdinand Marcos, and what that is looking like in the Philippines and even in the United States? Right. So even on the campaign trail, when Marcos Jr. and Sara Duterte were running, there was a really vibrant mass movement. Of course, Anak Bayan and our uh, other national democratic organizations in an alliance called Bayan uh, were there fighting against the Marcos's attempt to reclaim power, uh, you know, through a very dirty election and a lot of historical revisionism and disinformation. They're able to win that election. Uh, but we've been fighting ever since. And so you know, there have been mass protests against Marcos's inauguration, his the equivalent of the State of the Union address in the Philippines, we call it the State of the Nation address, and then most recently his visit to the United States. And so despite Marcos even having a standing contempt order in U.S. courts, he is able to come here because of diplomatic immunity to speak at the United Nations General Assembly. He also met with Joe Biden several times and other, uh, you know, multinational corporations. He met even with Boeing while he was here. Uh, and the Filipino community has been here to protest basically every single day of every single activity he's been. I had the opportunity of being in New York to join many of those protests uh, as Marcos came. Yeah. And on the note about the economic issue, um, Adrian, I know that also while Marcos was here in the U.S., uh, uh, he uh, visited the, the, the New York Stock Exchange and also gave a speech to corporations and investors talking about how the Philippines had been opened up to U.S. markets and things like that, telling them, quote, we are proud to share that we recently enacted policies to further liberalize our economy and welcome more Foreign investment to our shores. And I'm just wondering, you know, what what that opening up sort of really means and what it looks like for the people of the Philippines who, as we've been discussing, have already been, you know, struggling mightily under the, the uh, dire economic situation in the Philippines for some years now. That's right. You know, in that speech, it, it was really agitating. We were we were standing outside of the, the stock exchange as he was delivering that. And when news was coming in of what he was saying, uh, you know, that he was outright in admitting that he was further liberalizing the economy. He even claimed how he uh, described the Filipino people as high quality labor for, for other investor investment companies. And then he even claimed that the Philippines was on its way to becoming an upper middle income country uh, in a few years. I mean, later in, the, in his address to the United Nations General Assembly, he even said by next year it would be. And so we really don't know what world Marcos is living in. Uh, obviously, he's living in a very uh, privileged situation where uh, the dire impacts of the one of the highest inflation rates in the Philippines, over 6%, the peso, the Philippine currency, is current at, currently at its lowest value ever, historically. Um, and so further liberalization of the economy will just mean a lot more foreign plunder of resources. The Philippines is site of a lot of foreign mining corporations, logging corporations, the privatization of uh, the energy sector, and all of these have the impact of uh, creating an economy that isn't allowing the resources to be used for the people. Um, you know, we, we always mention some facts like the Philippines is a huge producer of sugar and rice. Uh, there's huge sugarcane plantations, rice fields, uh, but the Philippines is also a net importer of rice because 
all of the agriculture it produces is not being eaten by the people, but being used for export. And so that's, you know, a very simple way to see this contradiction of what foreign investment and so on will do. And because there's not that economic uh, basis, there's not uh, developed agriculture, there's not industry. That's why Marcos the senior, and then even now Marcos Jr., look to things like labor export as a way to keep economies afloat. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was reading an article about these uh, recent protests in New York around the United Nations, um, Adrian, uh, from a site called uh, The People's Dispatch. And uh, there was another uh, sort of level to exploitation with this. And I mean, first of all, I have to say, I mean, the way that Marcos describes the people of the Philippines as this prime source of, I mean, for a leader, for a head of state to talk about their people in that way, I mean, it sounds like, you know, that, that like he's at the auction block, like he's literally trying to sell the labor of his people to uh, their exploiters. And uh, and to me, that's connected to this issue of Marcos supporting this policy of exporting uh, Filipino labor uh, to these uh, other countries. And I was surprised to find that the Philippines exports more labor than any other country. And as of 2018, about 10 percent of the country's population actually works overseas. And, you know, and so sort of uh, keeping with this theme of uh, the economic situation inside the Philippines, I mean, I'm sure uh, the people of that country would love to have, you know, uh, a job with a living wage and all of that right there in their home country. But here is, you know, Marco supporting this policy of basically farming out the labor of uh, the Filipino people to these other countries. And so it seems to me that Marcos is more than willing, in fact, happy to sort of throw the uh Filipino people, you know, at the mercy of foreign capital and have them be exploited if it somehow, you know, uh, benefits him or his administration. And so I just feel like it's just one example of, uh, frankly, how, you know, inhumanity seems to be at the core of the Marcos Duterte regime uh, program as they continue to, you know, brutalize uh, uh, the, the, the people of the, the Philippines in all these different ways. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, this pol- we call it the labor export policy because it really has become institutionalized. It was something that was started by Marco Sr. as a way to try to keep the economy afloat. And so he created many schools. He created a lot of government agencies to consolidate the uh, institutionalization and the process for exporting labor abroad. You know, people always wonder why, why are there are so many Filipino nurses in the United States. It's because actually of that legacy of labor exports started by Marco Sr. And that has continued with every single administration after that. You know, uh, the former president Arroyo in the Philippines, uh, who was president in the 2000s, considered herself uh, the CEO of basically Philippine labor and had a very similar stance to you know, auctioning off people, like you mentioned. And so Marcos Jr. on the campaign trail mentioned that he would continue this policy of labor export. Uh, We're seeing it as he speaks to the New York Stock Exchange. He even had the audacity to say it in front of the Filipino community. His first visit in the United States was with the Filipino community in uh, New Jersey. And he uh, thanked uh, them for sending the remittances because it helped to keep the economy afloat during the pandemic. And so 
uh, it just goes to show how he really views the people as just uh, milking cows and cash cows uh, to continue the, you know, the rule of the ruling class in the Philippines at the expense of, of labor that is being heavily exploited abroad, including in the U.S., And what about addressing the abuses from the former Marcos uh, regime that people in the Philippines are uh, demanding be addressed today? What has been the response from uh, Marcos Jr. in addressing the grievances of people who were abused by his father's regime? No response. A lot of gaslighting. He's actually defending the he defends martial law. He defends the decision of his father. There's been no any. There's been no accountability, no form of justice for martial law survivors. Even his diplomatic immunity coming to the United States, uh, the, the contempt order that's issued against him and his family. It's three hundred fifty-three million dollars. It's for reparations for victims of martial law. His family has never paid it. And now he's just allowed to walk the United States freely, knowing that just victims are still waiting. We actually had speakers who are part of that class action lawsuit speak at actions in New York and other parts of the country. You know, these are people who faced horrendous, undescribable forms of torture, violence, people whose families, family members they have never seen because they were just disappeared. And there is just so much historical revisionism that Marcos Jr. and his entire family have been working hard at revising textbooks, uh, changing public discourse, creating a a culture of disinformation that, of course, Rodrigo Duterte uh, was very skilled at and that the Marcos camp has has definitely learned from. And so there are a lot of people today, unfortunately, who don't even believe martial law was bad. Uh, a, a lot of generation of youth who don't believe it was bad. And so that's part of Anak Bayan's work. Part of Bayan's work is to really do that community political education uh, and to say, you know, never forget and never again to those martial law years. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Adrian, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Nate Wallace, co-host of the Red Spin Sports Podcast. Nate, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean. Glad to be back. How are you doing? Doing well, Nate. Doing well. And uh, uh, kicking things off today, it's been reported that uh, the Czech foreign ministry has said that Russian hockey players will not be welcome in Prague for uh, that particular stop for an upcoming uh, National Hockey League tour. And I mean, clearly, this is uh, the ongoing sort of uh, geopolitical ripple effects from the ongoing war in Ukraine that has, frankly, uh, seemingly made a Russo phobia okay uh, for uh, the, the world over. But I was hoping you could tell us more uh, about this, Nate, and uh, how you see it all connecting to uh, some of these deeper issues happening around the globe. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I woke up this morning to just uh, an alternate reality, just as, uh, you know, family watching just kind of the morning news, uh, MSNBC, CNN, talking about, um, you know, Putin's brinkmanship, about uh, nuclear war and and, uh, basically acting as if he's just making these statements flippantly and not as if, like, you know, there had been. You know, Munich Security Conference in February this year, Zelensky talking about you know needing nuclear weapons in Ukraine, and and, um, and then you know the, the, the talk about Sergey Lavrov and how he showed up and made the speech and left at the United Nations yesterday. So we're already that's the backdrop for this story. I mean, we're in a complete propaganda war. It's not even a pretext really that um, this is a. Uh, just Ukraine versus Russia, you know, military conflict anymore. This is a uh, NATO versus Russia. And in that context, we have uh, the upcoming National Hockey League season. And ever since the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union or even late perestroika, um, Glasnost era of, of the Soviet Union, you had you've had Russian players start to play uh, professional hockey abroad, not just for the Red Army team like they did um in, in the Soviet era. So there's many Russian NHL players, most notably in the nation's capital itself for the Washington Capitals, Alexander Ovechkin, uh, that play for NHL teams. Now, the San Jose Sharks is one of the teams, are one of the teams that uh, will be playing, is scheduled to play the Nashville Predators um, in, in the Czech Republic coming up on August 7th and 8th. And what's happened, it, Czech, Czech Foreign Ministry has made it clear, Martin uh, Smolik shared this with the Associated Press, that uh, those players will not be able to be part of that trip. And you have the reaction coming in. The San Jose Sharks and their GM, general manager, um, who made it very clear in the statement on this that uh, Mike Greer, that is, with the San Jose Sharks, that, you know, we're either all going or no one's going. So it's going to be interesting to see how this this plays out. I mean, especially when you have a situation like Ovechkin, who is, you know, the, one of the most notable faces in, of the whole entire sport um it'd be like if the best nba player were happened to happen to be from russia which is not the case um it'd be that kind of level of uh of a deal um obviously hockey is a, is more of a regional sport here in north america especially in canada and in the northern colder parts of the country but uh, it's a big deal in europe it's a huge deal in russia and i think in terms of just like our talking about how the geopolitics of this new uh, Cold War that's uh, playing itself out. And then we're seeing the dangers of people like Anthony Blinken, who should be pointed out, was uh, had Victoria, none other than Victoria Newland sitting behind him as he addressed the United Nations yesterday, making these kind of claims and, and clearly pushing for. Uh, these kind of policies and, and encouraging governments like the Czech Republic to uh, to take these kind of stands. So um, it's good to see the San Jose Sharks pushing back. Um, you hope to see that more because it's not a small number of players. Um, but you have, you know, you, you, I mean, I don't want to start butchering names. I'm not going to read through it. But you can look through the list of guys that play for the Sharks, play for the, uh, the Predators, and, um, and they will not be available to play um, in that game. So we'll be, have to monitor whether that goes forward or whether – uh, the Czech Republic, just like much of Europe, is um, will lose a great sporting opportunity like this that you know, they have in their, on their home soil in Prague, much like the EU is deciding to collectively basically sanction and punish themselves uh, by cutting off Russian natural gas and, and, um, and leading to uh, all sorts of issues that you know, English Premier League even is talking about. The idea of having to play games during the day, having to modify their schedules so that you know, they can you know, save on on heating for stadiums or, or whatever and, and other energy costs. So 
Um, it all fits within this larger context. And um, I think that's just another example of how sports intersects with uh, global geopolitics. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, this is not the first time that we've discussed uh, Russian uh, athletes facing this kind of discrimination. Similar thing happened with the Olympics and with Wimbledon and all of these things. And so clearly just, you know, these different sports organizations um, basically uh, following the the political orientation and program of the U.S. and the West, even though these players didn't have anything to do with uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine or the ongoing war in Ukraine. But it is seen as okay to discriminate them simply for being uh, born in the quote-unquote wrong country. And on a similar note, talking about Russia and sports, uh, uh, Nate, there continue to be developments around the plight of WNBA star Brittany Griner, who was uh, serving a sentence in uh, Russia in the midst of all this with ongoing discussions around a prisoner swap. And I mean, the two governments, the United States and Russia, seem to feel differently um, about their uh, uh, about how this whole process and going with, uh, you know, Joe Biden saying that, you know, that the U.S. government is basically doing their best to bring Griner home and all of that. But Russia seems to be saying something different. I mean, uh, what's the latest with this, uh, Nate, as, you know, Washington and Moscow continue to seem to be on two different pages as it concerns uh, a Griner situation? I mean, the latest is uh, more of the same. I hate to say I mean, we heard about the big prisoner swap that happened um, yeah, between some ad- sending the Azov fighters back to Ukraine and return for, um, you know, some some you know, Russians that were in prison in, in within Ukraine with, you know, under areas under Ukraine's control, the Ukrainian you know, government's control. So, um, you know, we, we know there's those channels of communication exist. We even know that Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia, you know, played a role um, in some of those negotiations. But as it relates to Brittany Griner, I, I do fear that, um, and I've said this before, I mean, objectively speaking, uh, I mean, her being in, in, in jail for um, a small amount of, you know, cannabis oil in a cartridge, I mean, it's just objectively, you know, not, not something I agree with. But the only look at that is to miss the larger context of what's happening. You know, instead of just having this just completely narrow view that it is all just evil Russia um, and the, the freedom-loving U.S. trying to, to save Griner, trying to, to stand up for her, it's the dy- it's it's the policies that the collective West, led by the United States, has pushed for, uh, you know, especially since 2014 in the context of, of Ukraine, that has led to this, uh, you know, situation where, you have the the you know the falling out of relations. You have um, the inability of, of embassy personnel from the United States and Moscow to effectively negotiate. And I'll get to the and Griner is uh, is really paying the price for that because while you know we can talk about the the, the, the laws and whether they're fair or not, um, there's a whole lot of drug laws on the book put in place by you know President Joe Biden <laughs> growing up. Um, you know, when I was a kid growing up and you know, think of the crime bill for one and the hundred to one crack to powder um, cocaine ratio that, that, you know, it was had an extraordinarily disproportionate impact on communities of color in the United States that, uh, that, that I mean, are outrageous. And yet we're sitting here because we've come a long, little way in state with states in the District of Columbia, you know, you know, moderating on cannabis laws, somehow preaching from this position of uh you know, being just 
complete sanctimonious tone about this. I mean, this is a political matter. It's it's a tragedy for Griner that and, and her family that uh, she's been caught up in this. But uh, this was not a war that was just started when uh, Russia you know, crossed the border into Ukraine back in February. This has been uh, the people in the Donetsk People's Republic and Lugansk people, People's Republic have been crying out for Russian help to, 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 you know, to push back against these Ukrainian, Ukrainian shellings the last eight years. So Griner is caught up in that context. And, and you know, I think it is important to point out that, that you know, what Russia is actually saying here, because you won't actually hear it in the United States. Um, the Russian you know, foreign ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova says uh, that the institution referring to the U.S. embassy in Moscow is, quote, not fulfilling its official duties with regards to the situation. She said, continues to say, we have stated many times that we are ready for negotiations to resolve the fate of U.S. citizens convicted in Russia and Russian citizens in the U.S., Zakharova said via Yahoo. So that's a reality we don't hear about. We hear it's just all one sided. That uh, you know, they're they're you know, that Russia is just this is just draconian, and uh, that's pretty much all you need to know. And uh, you know, it's just there's two sides to every story here, and um, I think it's important that, that Americans at least hear that context somewhere because they're they're certainly not getting it in mainstream media. Yeah, definitely. And switching gears a little bit to uh, perhaps the most uh, prominent sports story happening right now, and that's that the Boston Celtics have suspended coach Ime Yudoka for the 2022-2023 season uh, when it came to light that um, he was uh, basically having an affair uh, with one of uh, the franchise's staff, uh, something that's been described as a, a intimate and consensual uh, relationship with this woman. Uh, a lot of buzz around this because Yadoka is married to uh, popular actress Nia Long. So uh, quite naturally, a lot of commentary on that. People love to talk about celebrity relationships. But that aside, Nate, I mean, uh, how are you sort of analyzing uh, this whole situation with Yadoka here? Well, I'll say this. Uh, the season-long suspension is unprecedented, um, especially for a coach who in his first year took the Boston Celtics to NBA Finals last year. Um, before this broke, I'm not sure if it's changed, uh, Las Vegas Sportsbooks had the Celtics as the favorite, actually, to win the NBA Finals um, in terms of their odds. So it, it's monumental. You have Brad Stevens, the former head coach, who's now the you know, president of operations there in Boston, who uh, had a big role in this decision. Um, there's been a lot of rumors in terms of uh, who uh, the affair was with, and I don't really want to put the name out there yet because um, while it seems likely that you know, given the kind of insular life that you have to live as a head coach and you're traveling a lot and you're working so much in the office, that um, that what's been rumored probably is that you know, it was between the two of them. Um, you know, it hasn't been confirmed, and we'll, so I'll hold off on that. But the reality is, yeah, the fact that, you know, They've been in a long-term engagement, have a child together, uh, Nia Long and Ime Adoka, um, and the fact that they didn't just come out and fire him. So they're essentially like creating this limbo-like situation where the new head coach um, who's going to be coming in and taking over for him is a, a 34-year-old, uh, Missoula, who um, you know had interviewed with the Utah Jazz um, earlier this summer. Uh, but you know ultimately you know, is getting his turn at being a head coach uh, long before uh, many others who, uh, you know, kind of paid their dues. But nonetheless, no one could have predicted this situation coming down the way it did. So I think it's uh, it's something worth monitoring. I don't think there's any guarantee that Ime Odota will return necessarily next season. It could be that another club comes after him and, and feels that, 
you know, we're not going to we want we're not going to treat you that way. And it's also important that this is not coming down from the NBA. This is coming down from the Boston Celtics for what they say are you know violations of their organizational policies um, here um, with regards to you know having romantic uh, relationships you know within. The, the organization of the, the Boston Celtics. So um, it'd be interesting to see what comes up. Doge is not going to appeal it or fight it, it seems like. Um, so uh, we'll just have to continue to monitor it from here. Um, but I, I don't think this situation is anything they're resolved. Yeah, and we got a couple of minutes left, Nate. I did want to touch on the the union drive inside uh, the minor league of uh, the MLB. Uh, we can definitely get into it deeper, I think, in, in another segment. But I did at least want to broach the uh, subject because I feel like it's uh, an important development here. Yeah, it's it's absolutely huge. I mean, like Joe Hudson, a guy who's been a minor leader for many years and put a cup of coffee in the majors a couple of times, 31-year-old, said just guys didn't think it was possible, point blank. Um, you go down and there's so many different layers to this. Um, like uh, other workforces, different than other workforces, um, you can just be called up, you know, promoted from, you know, double A AA to triple A AA or triple A to the majors, and you could be sent back down, sent back up. So how do players like that, you know, the the catalyst for this union drive advocates for minor league players that um, ultimately pushed started in 2020 when uh, the pandemic caused the minor league season to be canceled um, you know, for housing issues um, and pointed out that, you know, how do these guys, how do these guys end up signing leases? How do they um, get housing, secure housing? Because they might be two weeks later sent down to a, a lower level or called up. And uh, so it's a unique situation. And the fact that, you know, MLB now feels compelled to issue statements saying that we've always you know, collectively bargained in good faith and believe in the rights of our workers to negotiate. We've done that for years. Um, it just is just laughable on the face when you look at the history of MLB. And um, it's a very oppositional stance towards uh, towards labor. Um, but this is big that the Major League Baseball Players Association finally hopped on board and is willing to, to negotiate on their behalf as a separate bargaining unit. Um, you have to go over language barriers. Um, a lot of many Dominican player pointed out that you know this is a situation that was much harder for them too. Um, you know, being in another country, having to adapt on top of the, you know, and, and it's hard even if you're from from the U.S. So um, it's just it's monumental. And yeah, I would like to you know, elaborate a little bit more, but I know we're, we're kind of pushed for time. But it's something that people should be paying attention to. And also, I think take inspiration. And if they can organize something as transient as minor league baseball players, and they can make it work and overcome all the cynicism and skepticism, um, it should be. Uh, it, it is it is an inspirational story and, it's, and something that should inspire other worker movements um, in other areas of the economy. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Nate, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, February 23rd, 2022. 
And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.Mave. That's M-A-V. E.digital, and you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202 202- 521-1320 but wherever you are in this world and however you do it we want to hear from you we most certainly do we most certainly do when we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by ted Rawl, an award-winning editorial cartoonist and columnist and author of the graphic novel the stringer ted thanks so much for joining us thanks for having me Absolutely. And uh, Ted, the Pentagon is actually calling for a review of the online uh, uh, activity, if you will, of different wings of the U.S. military following from a a report that was released in August uh, saying that uh, Twitter and uh, Meta, formerly Facebook, um, discovered networks of pro-U.S. bots, basically, uh, on social media. Uh, pushing and advocating uh, basically what's been described as like a pro-U.S. or pro-Western line, or actually the language is, quote, promote pro-Western narratives in countries like China, Afghanistan, and Russia. Now, of course, there's more than a bit of irony here, as particularly in uh, recent years, the U.S. has accused countries like China and Russia and others of uh, spreading disinformation. And I mean, in the case of Russia, going so far as to claim that that, uh, they interfered with uh, the 2016 election in the United States. And so particularly as uh, a journalist and someone who, you know, has dealt with his uh, own uh, issues about expressing certain ideas in these types, in, in those uh, publications, I'm just sort of wondering how this whole issue of these, you know, uh, uh, U.S. bot farms, if we could call it that, are uh, uh, sort of operating. I mean, reportedly, uh, there's an investigation um, into the extent to which these accounts were uh, backed or supported by uh, you know, the U.S. government or the military and things like that. But just sort of curious, your top line thoughts, Ted, about uh, how this whole issue is sort of striking you. Uh, you know, this is like an onion. It's one of those stories that you just peel away at the layers and you find more and more ironies. Uh, I, I was, uh, you know, first of all, I have to laugh at the idea that the Pentagon has to investigate the Pentagon. Uh, in order, you know, it's, uh, aside from the conflict of interest, the irony is it seems likely that the Pentagon has to investigate itself because it doesn't really know, uh, you know, the left hand doesn't always know what the right hand is doing, which sort of showcases uh, a level of, of 
incompetence uh, and disorganization that I guess in a way makes me feel safer. Um, the Pentagon is not as dangerous, perhaps, as uh, as I thought. Um, I also, you know, can't help think about, like, you know, how uh, the Washington Post editorialized, and this is hilarious, uh, that basically, you know, this kind of behavior contributes to the idea that nobody really feels like they can believe anything that they see online. And then, in the same breath, the, the same you know, editorial board. This is not an op-ed, you know, where they hired some, you know, freelancer like me to write. This is the actual official opinion of the editorial board of the Washington Post. Uh, They said, well, you know, if they are going to do it, which they shouldn't do it, but if they are going to do it, they shouldn't get caught. That's literally a quote uh, from their editorial. Um, I mean, look, the reality is, of course, that uh, in the information age, um, the internet is a, a battlefield of, uh, you know, in term in, in a literal sense, and it's also a uh, a battlefield for information and spin and propaganda, and that's true. I mean, it's probably every conceivable corporation or nation state or you know political candidacy or political movement you can think of is up to something like this to some extent around the world. And what makes, you know, that that's not really surprising, but it does make the information space that's so poorly policed by big tech uh, just completely impossible to take seriously uh, much of the time. And it also uh, sort of really highlights for me maybe the biggest takeaway, which is how the United States does All these things, like interfering in other countries' elections, invading other countries, uh, pushing out uh, disinformation and misinformation, uh, which other countries do as well. And then, but but the U.S. is unique in that it howls, you know, just like a wounded animal, like a crying baby about how this is just so wrong when other people do it uh, or supposedly do it. Uh, but, you know, but they do the same exact thing. And I mean, it's the hypocrisy of it. I mean, it's, uh, you know, obviously you can just sort of pick uh, any kind of country of any size in the world, throw a dart at the map, and you're going to find a country that does the same thing. But you don't see them complaining and whining about other rival countries doing the same thing. And that's the part that I can't get over about the United States. It's like, it's such a bully when it, you know, when it gets called out for, uh, you know, for doing the same exact thing. It sort of just deflects and 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 laughs and points to other people, but they just never, you know, they don't just they, they can never just sort of play it straight and say, yeah, you know, we do it, they do it, everybody does it, uh, you know, let's be grown ups here. Um, and that's the part of their behavior and their propaganda. That is just so hard to take, I think. And, you know, Ted, I'm wondering what your thoughts are as to why it took 
uh, pretty much a whole month for uh, the Department of Defense, uh, anyone, you know, corporate media, anyone to pay attention to uh, the revelations in this report, because the report came out in August. Um, and it wasn't like the end of August. I remember doing a monologue about this report when it came out. I thought it was shocking, a bombshell then. But of course, in corporate media, there were crickets. And now, you know, a month later, now that a Department of Defense is like, oh, my God, we have to do something about this. What What do you think is the reason that they had to come out publicly about this issue after corporate media pretty much ignored this thing for a, a little bit more than a month? Uh, well, Jackie, I mean, one can only speculate, but, you know, hey, that's what we're here for. So I'll, I'll, I'll try. Um, you know, it could be anything as, uh, as, as mundane as the fact that, you know, in official Washington and for that matter, in official in uh, media New York, uh, a lot of people are on vacation and away in August, and uh, people just aren't paying a much paying attention to much of anything. And as a person who's worked in the news media for most of my life, uh, as silly and stupid as that sounds, I swear to God, if there were a thermonuclear war, uh, you know, on August eighth, it might not get fully reported until after Labor Day. Um, it's uh, you know, I mean, the, the pe- reporters really are gone. Uh, there's skeleton crews at these organizations, so that that could be a, at least a contribute. I'm sure it's at least a contributing factor, but I think also this um, some stories, some outrages percolate uh, in so you know in social media and on the internet more than others, and this one seemed to be bubbling along with no sign of going away anytime soon. So you know, once everybody came back from the holidays. Uh, including, you know, over in uh, over at the at the five sides decided building on the other side of the Potomac, uh, there was there was a sense that, uh, well, uh, okay, this one's not going to just uh, die away like so many other stories. So we probably have to address it. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, j- just in thinking about this whole thing, Ted, I mean, first of all, you're speaking facts when you talk about the the summer news slump and, uh, you know, the journalists go on vacation. Our, our job gets a little more difficult here on by any means necessary when that happens. But in truth, I mean, I just feel like, uh, you know, this this sort of exposes uh, you know, we've talked about the hypocrisy, but really just sort of the reality of uh, propaganda in the United States and how that uh, often emanates from the uh, corporate media and uh, certainly from uh, the halls of power. And, yeah, even from these different agencies and institutions like the U.S. military. And I feel like it's important to raise that because of how the U.S., um, is uh, uh, always sort of uh, accusing other countries and other nations of doing that. And in doing so, sort of implying that the U.S. is sort of this, you know, uh, innocent angel that wouldn't do such a thing. You know, it would never it would never engage in misinformation and disinformation. It would never knowingly lie uh, uh, to its people when in truth, not only does it do that, but has for some time, you know what I mean, and, and I just feel like more and more that uh, that uh, the 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 kind of mask uh, over this whole thing and on the issue of propaganda in this country is uh, pulled off more and more, and you know, sort of the more that happens, I think the more people will see. But also, I think an important factor is how 
the minds of the people in the U.S. have already been poisoned to sort of think that, you know, more or less uh, that, you know, uh, propaganda, misinformation and disinformation. It only comes from the bad countries. It only comes from, you know, the countries with these insidious and, and devious sort of uh, machinations um, on the people of the U.S. and want to attack our democracy and our freedom and all those sorts of things. And so, I mean, what I'm really getting at here, Ted, is that uh, in truth, I just feel like the innocence that the U.S. pretends to have on these issues is just sort of being, you know, revealed as the farce that it always was. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, uh, Sean, I hope you, I hope so. Uh, it's certainly being revealed to people who pay attention. Mm. I always worry that, you know, people are working multiple jobs and long hours, and a lot of people, uh, you know, have been trained not to pay attention uh, by a media that seems to uh, not be terribly interested in uh, turning its lens against sort of these basic truths. It's, it's a um, you know, it's it is it, it, that's the that's the essence, I think, of the idea, uh, the ridiculous idea of American exceptionalism, uh, which is that you know somehow you know we are the United States is exempt uh, from being held to the same standards as every other country because somehow it behaves better than every other country when in fact it behaves in many respects uh, worse than any other country. And um, so, uh, I mean, I guess the big advantage, really, probably the biggest propaganda tool that the U.S. has to sort of enforce this kind of idea uh, among its own population is the fact that international coverage uh, on our news, on our news networks is so, uh, it's, there's so little of it. And what there is is so insanely spun and biased that you know the American people kind of don't really know what's going on uh, in and you know across, over across the world. I mean, you know, this uh, the media obsesses over celebrity news, domestic news, and when it turns its eyes overseas, um, it's for contentless pablum. Like for example, you know, seven consecutive days of 24-hour coverage of the funeral for Queen Elizabeth. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, the fact that she, that a 96-year-old, uh, you know, nominal head of state uh, is dead is not really news. Uh, and certainly, uh, you know, seeing all that pageantry is not news. And all I could do is look at all those shots of Buckingham Palace and whatnot and think of all the real news stories that were not going to be covered during that time. Uh, and, and, you know, it's not like those stories were shunted aside in order to cover uh, the Queen's death and, and, uh, and funeral arrangements. Uh, it was, you know, intentional. It's like they're, they're, they're quashing major news from overseas in order to, uh, and, and, and they do this on purpose. They fill up that gap with this crap um, that's just supposed to, you know, please the eyes. But, you know, look, there, there's no content whatsoever. I mean, you know, it's a tweet. Queen Elizabeth II died, 96, you know, longest reigning monarch. Finish, end of story. But it just wouldn't go away. Yeah, and you know, you describing the issue of uh, Queen Elizabeth's death, it reminded me, I don't know if you saw this, Ted, but um, actor Chris Maloney, who people uh, likely know from Law & Order SVU, also uh, had a prominent role on Oz back in the day. 
Um, you know, he was recently asked by uh, a reporter about, you know, the funeral of Queen Elizabeth. And, and like he literally laughed. He just laughed and shook his head. It almost it almost seemed like he might have wanted to, like, go in about it a little bit. But he simply said, quote, no, I'm more worried about Puerto Rico and other things. And like, yeah, a single storm knocked out the entire electrical grid for the country, for the entire country. But yet people are, you know, uh, you know, crying tears over this uh, old imperialist that uh, met her fate, I would argue, far too mercifully. You know what I mean? And I mean, this is an aside, but I, I am curious sort of generally, um, Ted, although, I mean, you've touched on it some about this sort of about the coverage of uh, Queen Elizabeth's funeral, because as you note, here in the U.S., and I tend to think this is true of the West in general, there is a kind of obsession with celebrity. There's a there's a culture of celebrity worship that definitely trickles down to uh to, uh, you know, uh, the news and how it's reported and how people consume it and things like that. I mean, you know, also tend to think, you know, uh, we're seeing that with this case we're talking about earlier in the show about this coach of the Celtics who, you know, got suspended for an entire season for having an affair with a woman who also worked for the organization. He happens to be married to a popular actress and it's just like this huge thing. You know what I mean? And so on the one hand, I understand people Having an interest in, um, I guess, the lives and dealings of prominent people on a number of levels. But there's a difference between that than I think the all up uh, all out obsession that is indicative to our culture, but also shows up in the field of journalism and on some of these mainstream platforms who you would think would know better. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, Sean, I agree with you. Look, I, I don't begrudge people having fun. And yeah. To me, uh, celebrity news, like it, it's fun and it's interesting, and you know who doesn't? Uh, who doesn't really want to know why Leonardo DiCaprio refuses to date anyone over the age of twenty-five? I mean, <laughs> I want to know, um, but it's there's a there should be and there are channels and publications for and and websites dedicated for to celebrity gossip and uh, you know the paparazzi photos and all that stuff and i'm i'm not immune to wanting to you know look at that stuff but i feel like it should be separated from what is packaged as serious news uh, i don't think you know i think as a just sort of a matter of policy you really can't claim to be a serious news organization, uh, you know, the way that, say, CNN or, or, or MSNBC or even Fox claim to be, and then have, you know, wall-to-wall coverage of, you know, it's non-news. Uh, you know, as you said, you know, imperialist, old imperialist dies, uh, you know. And it, 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 the thing is, it kind of... Um, this it's more it goes beyond being insipid and depriving us of coverage of you know that we really need for example you mentioned the crisis in Puerto Rico Puerto Rico just got slammed you know again right it happened last year and the year before and you know it's it we, you know Puerto Rico is treated abysmally uh even by american standards and you know american people need to focus on that um but it's also it has there's also a pernicious aspect to this i i noted the fact that uh, you know biden ordered flags uh, placed at half mast i mean i was like excuse me but didn't we fight an entire revolution uh, of a freedom struggle in order to liberate ourselves from this monarchy um so i don't really know this would be like 
you know, Hitler lives at old an old ripe age, and then Israel orders their flags placed at half mast after he dies. Uh, that's weird, and it's um, the same thing uh, in India, where I think it was for one day flags were placed at half mast. Uh, the order, uh, Prime Minister Modi ordered that, and there's a lot of anger, and I think rightfully so, among the people of India who point out that uh, you know Britain, by some counts, killed as many as. 35, or is responsible for the deaths of 35 million Indian citizens. Um, you know, part. You know, it, it, in you know 1947 and you know before. So I mean, it, it, and people were talking about how this reinforces sort of a colonialist mentality. It's like, well, you know, you can be free of these of of these British imperialists and col- colonialists. Uh, you know, in in fact, but if you're not free of them in your mind. You're not truly free. And part of, you know, I, I think you, you kind of have to have contempt for monarchy if you have any sense of um, that people deserve to be free and should be treated equally and that people should be emancipated. I mean, monarchy is, uh, you know, it goes completely, even a, a fake constitutional monarchy like England has, which is just a waste of money. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing that goes counter to these egalitarian values that the West pretends to care about. So, you know, it's 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 toxic, I think. Yeah. You know, Ted, I said the same thing, man, uh, when Elizabeth died and not even on like a patriotic tip, but it's like, yo, you know, America fought like an independence struggle against Britain. But now this lady dies. I'm supposed to act like she was my grandma or something. But anyway, we're going to go to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Ted Raw. And we have a caller on the line here, Tarif. Tell us what's on your mind. Thank y'all for taking my call. Um, I had missed 20 minutes of your call, uh, but I had got the last two minutes of what Ted Roy was saying. Uh, hopefully, I won't be going over what you already went through, but here, here's my take on the British Empire. Okay, first, I like to say free drill and science. Okay, the British Empire, it came out with last week basically to give a, a, a type of story to the world that it was the Africans fought for slavery. What She didn't mention that African slavery was in the same thing like chattel sex slavery. African slaves, excuse me, African slaves can marry to the other tribes that conquer them, and also they can own land, they can make their own money, and yes, they can leave and come back without being watched. So their slavery was totally different. Okay, the British Empire uh, said, okay, woman said last week that spoke to Donald Lemon and said, okay, they stopped slavery, right? 2,000 slaves lost their life. But what she didn't mention is this. Back in, in the 1800s, they had debate in Britain, Europe, and especially United States, states that was saying that they had too many African people going to the Western Hemisphere, to the Americas, to North America, and to 
Central and South America in the Caribbean islands. They was out starting to outnumber the European descendants, right? And the reason why they brought that up was is because back in the late 18, in the 1700s, early 1800s, you had a, the Haitian Revolution. Then 30 or 40 years after that, then you had like a rebellion that took place in Jamaica. Then you had, <clears throat> excuse me, then you had a, a fighting going on in Brazil. Uh, I forgot the name of the uh, people in Brazil that started going into the mountains and stuff to get away. And they was, was fighting so, so successfully, some of them got sent back to Africa, the game of ships where they went back to Africa. Then you had like people in like Honduras fighting and things of that nature. Then you had the revolution, excuse me, you had um, slave rebellions along with Native American rebellions in, in the United States, in Florida, Louisiana, Mississippi, where you had the, 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 uh, trail, the trail of tears, where you had a whole bunch of Africans with Native Americans got shipped to Oklahoma, right, territories. So she didn't bring that up, why they stopped the slave trade. is because of those reasons, because the um, the, um, the presidents at the time, the, 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 the local politicians at the time was afraid of slave um, 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 rebellions. So that needs to be addressed. And also what you also need to be addressed along with that is reparations. And I'm afraid that we might have to take our reparations flight to Africa where we talk with the brothers from out of Nigeria, Ghana, Congo, those places, and we we establish something with the paperwork we already have, updated, and make a show that we all fight together, the Africans in the diaspora and Africans in Africa, to get our, our reparations. Because as long as we try to organize here in the United States, COINTEL Pro going to be used against us. You're always going to have somebody stepping up trying to destroy it, like you're trying to do now. Thank y'all for taking my call, man. Thank you, Tarif. Always good to hear from. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Ted, I wanted to switch gears uh, here a little bit to talk about uh, New York Attorney General Letitia James uh, filing uh, filing a lawsuit recently against Donald Trump, along with three of his adult children and executives at his company, of uh, basically uh, manipulating asset valuations and property uh, valuations to deceive uh, uh, lenders. Uh, what do you make of this? The 222-page uh, civil complaint, and just wondering how you see it uh, factoring into <laughs> you know the, the ever-growing saga that. That is uh, 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 Donald Trump here in the United States. Well, I've been kind of fascinated by the uh, reaction, the two uh, sort of the the Democratic, anti-Trump, liberal, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, reaction to this, which is that there's not a lot of interest in whether or not he can really be convicted, or you know, whether uh, a civil lawsuit is the right way to go, or you know, really kind of like how one could possibly determine the harm um, that was that he actually did. I mean, you know, uh, this is like on the one hand, you know, this is a witch hunt, as, as he says, because, you know, the, the Letitia James ran for attorney general um, on the, uh, you know, sorry, she was going to run for governor and she ran for attorney general on the uh, promise that she was going to prosecute Donald Trump to political promise. So he's right. You know, she's after him. The problem with this witch hunt is for Donald Trump is, you know, he's a witch. <laughs> he did. He he absolutely, you know, did. He overvalued his properties in plain sight. He 
when he announced in 2015 that he was running for president and he was required to fill out his net worth on a campaign declaration form, he wrote $10 billion in all caps with an exclamation mark. All that he was missing was like a smiley emoji. And, uh, you know, I mean, not, not 9.6, not 10.4, 10 billion, exactly. Um, and, I mean, so he's done this over and over for, and I think, uh, you know, reading the complaint, it's very clear that he's gotten loans and, and business partnership arrangements, uh, and, and, uh, as a result that he shouldn't have gotten, uh, as a result of saying things like, for example, that his apartment in Trump Tower is three times bigger than it really is because nobody bothered to go down to city hall and, you know, pull up the, the, the you know, the blueprints to see exactly really how big the place was. Um, but on the other hand, the problem is, uh, you know, Trump never defaulted on any of these uh, deals. Uh, he didn't stiff any of the banks the way that he's stiffed his vendors in the past. Um, and so it's, you know, it's kind of like, I think if there had been more there, there, we'd be looking at a criminal indictment and as opposed to a civil lawsuit. And the part that I find, you know, fascinating is how Democrats who uh, rightfully so are, you know, criticized January 6th and Trump's role in it uh, and this insurrection uh, as being something that is contrary to the rule of law. But they don't care that much about the rule of law when it comes to getting Trump. It's sort of like, uh, you know, at the risk of, you know, like the name of this program, they, they want to get Trump by any means necessary. And they don't care, um, really, like if it's exactly legal or if it's exactly ethical. And so, you know, what you end up with is you sort of look at, we end up with like team politics here. Like Donald Trump has done everything uh, as a as a business person and as president and now as a possible future president. Basically, he says and does whatever he wants, uh, and he whatever gets what him what he wants is what he'll do and what he'll say. And he there's the truth be damned. But the problem is that the other side's doing the same thing, and it it, it really does seem like a you know it just it brings back the whole pox on both their houses thing. And I I had really hoped for more uh, from Attorney General James. I, I had hoped that there was going to be a very careful uh, criminal indictment. Instead, what she's really done is is just uh, sort of kick the can down the street over to the IRS as a referral, like, hey, we found all this stuff. Uh, we can't indict in New York, uh, but uh, you know, we're, we're going to sue. Um, that's going to take forever. Uh, trust me. I'm a, I'm a plaintiff in that same exact court uh, in, a, in something that has never come to trial since 1999. So I don't think Donald Trump's losing any sleep over the New York charges. Uh, but, uh, he, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's all this, there's this huge issue of, you know, what he, you know, what he did, uh, is he, you know, his business fraud and, uh, you know, which is pretty much just the way real estate developers you know, do business. Um, there's just it's it's sort of like getting Al Capone on taxes. It just seems cheap. And you know, you alluded to well, you didn't allude to allude to you illuminated the fact that neither Democrats nor Republicans 
can defeat Trumpism, which which I think is the end result and and, you know, the bitter taste in in our mouths that we're going to have to live with after I, God knows how many years of Trump collusion with Russia, Trump collusion, this and and, you know, he's in the Putin's puppet and, you know, all of this, all of these uh, uh, televised uh, hearings uh, about January 6th that oddly just kind of stopped. <laughs> If you notice, they they were happening and then they were kind of sporadic and then there was the last one and then there's no more. They're supposed to be allegedly interviewing Jenny Thomas for something. But I mean, all of this basically amounts to the fact that um, Trumpism is not something that can be rooted out by the Democratic Party, because as you point out, Ted, they're not they're not serious about about, um, you know, getting Trump on anything. But the Republicans can't do anything about it either. The the so-called establishment Republicans, the old guard. So, I mean, Trumpism is just what it is now. Right. Yes, it is. And um, the thing is, Democrats seem to think that uh, the way that they're going to put an end, drive a stake through Trumpism, is by appealing to, you know, sort of, quote, unquote, mainstream, uh, you know, country club, establishment, corporatist Republicans like Liz Cheney and Mitch McConnell, and that they're going to, to take their party back. And we're going to go back to some sort of not, you know, never has been uh, civility that existed in some distant past that nobody who's uh, under 200 years old has ever seen. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's fiction. Um, you know, I, in, the, in my column that you alluded to um, about this topic this week, uh, I referenced, I was reacting to a David Leanhart uh, column in the New York Times where he kind of calls for, he draws an analogy to the uh, rise of Nazism in Germany in the, late, in the early 1930s. And he talks about how you know, the real problem was that uh, traditional conservatives helped Hitler come to power. And, and that's totally true. But what's missing here is that in uh, the early 30s in Germany, there was a strong and vibrant left, political left, that accounted for roughly one out of three voters uh, between the uh, KPD and the SPD, which were the uh, German communist and uh, socialist parties between the two of them. And the left really did keep the Nazis at bay for a while, for a, for a good while. And what finally, you know, did them in and, and allowed the uh, coalition of the conservatives and the uh, far right Nazis to come to power was the fact that the socialists and communists couldn't really accommodate each other, or more specifically, the socialists refused to cooperate with the communists uh, in order to fight the Nazis. Um, here in the U.S., you know, the, the lesson here is we don't have any equivalent of a strong socialist or, com or communist party. We don't have a strong grassroots organized left. Uh, you know, what we have is more like ad hoc um, political movements that come together like the Women's March or Black Lives Matter to address specific controversies and outrages. But, and, you know, they're quickly organizable by the Internet, which is actually very promising and interesting. But then they dissolve when things, uh, you know, people's attention uh, is drawn elsewhere. But, you know, what they had in Germany and what we need here is a left wing movement that will counteract uh, right wing movements like Trump.
Trumpism because the thing about it is that you know the it's not like a weird um, coalition for the far right and the and the establishment right to be together. That's normal. That's what happens in Western societies. The establishment right loves to be friends and allies with the far extremist, racist, and xenophobic right, because those are the, 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 the people like the Proud Boys and the Charlottesville people are the shock, are the advanced guard. They're the, they're the, they're the, uh, the, the shock, you know, the shock troops of conservatism. Uh, and the conservatives are smart enough to recognize that in a way that, say, you know, liberal Democrats are not smart enough to recognize that a vibrant left could be their shock troops. Yeah, totally, totally. And, you know, even when uh, considering this <clears throat> and sort of the space, if you will, that that uh, a Donald Trump sort of occupies in our current political moment. I mean, as I always uh, point out, I mean, I feel like there's been so much uh, published and written and, and analyzed uh, about the Trump phenomena, if you will. And I think understandably so. But I just feel like a lot of it uh, tends to ignore a lot of the uh, very clear uh, material issues that have faced uh, swaths of people in this country uh, for a very long time. And the way that, um, you know, Trump also seized upon not only this fatigue of uh, professional politicians like Hillary Clinton and others, but also, you know, hitting on, you know, those old reactionary notes that always seem to go over well and racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia and this uh, anti-immigrant xenophobia and things like this while pretending to care about uh, poor and working people and maybe gesturing that way and even talking about, quote unquote, draining the swamp. But in truth, you know, we see that Trump is really just a part of the same class uh, element as the rest of the political establishment. He just sort of has a different way of expressing it, which uh, I think makes him unpalatable to, you know, uh, the mainstream that's so uh, caught up in quote unquote civility. But uh, we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. Zero two five two one one three two zero. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Ted Rawl is here. And we have a caller on the line. Allie, tell us what's on your mind. Hi, Sean. How are you doing? Um, thanks for uh, taking my call. And uh, I'm glad that I was listening to the show today. I'm not able to listen every day. But I heard Jackie, and I wish Jackie the best and good luck and hope to see her back soon. Um, yeah, I heard Jackie um, um, analysis today, and she was talking about capitalism at its greed. If you listen to if you listen to um, Gustavo Petro's speech at the UN, you will be able. Uh, that's one of the things that he was talking about. That this war on drugs and what is happening in Colombia is about power and greed. 
and and he was very clear. So if anybody uh, uh, would like to hear about what he said, listen to that speech. It's in Spanish and English. I think in Spanish you will get more more out of it, but the translation is good too. And and one of the things that he mentioned is the greed that is in this capitalism, in this way that this economic, our economics around the world runs, and the greed and the power, how all these people, black and brown people, they are in, 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 in our prison system, how how um, in Colombia is so much crime. And he went on, and I, 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 right now, even though they haven't finished, they will finish tomorrow. I think so far, because I have listened to a lot of speeches from from the UN, I, I thought he, he had given the best speech of all. And and going back to the British, uh, the British and the power, uh, one of the things that I will have to say, if you didn't want to see like that I did, and I watched Telesur, you could either watch Telesur in Spanish or Telesur in English. One of the things that they have been concentrating is about um, the UN, not this garbage that they have been presented to the American people in this country, because that is entertainment. That is how they keep people entertained and inside their home, and they don't even know what is happening in other, you know, in another, in other country. I just came back from Europe, and and I have to to say, you don't even see Americans in a lot of places in Europe. So that is one thing. It's just unbelievable how many ignorant people they are in this country. And and that they just wanted to be on TV watching all this pageantry and they don't want to listen to what is happening right around them. All this problem with housing that we're having in New, in New York. All these people unemployed and the jobs that you get out there, they just paying you the minimum wage. So Thank you. I just wanted to say that. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Ali. Always appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. One of our favorite callers here on By Any Means Necessary. Uh, Jackie Lukman, it was about your uh, monologue, so I'll uh, kick to you. Yeah, I mean, you know, that that whole, I, I thought it was really wild that I had not heard of that story. And I'm, you know, perusing, scanning, kind of looking at the news. And I, I had never heard of that story about this enormous scandal with the U.S. Navy and yet another uh, a scandal, a financial scandal where um, we see the misappropriation or the, the uh, lack of oversight in military funds where the U.S. Navy knew this guy was literally stealing money from the Navy. And they just kept giving him contracts anyway because that's the way the defense contractor system works. And that that's just how it is. And I think it's just another example of just as you always say, Sean, the rot that is just at the root of this system. There's no reforming this thing. You can't fix them, people. <laughs> it's not It's not going to work. It, it, a whole new system. They just get rid of the whole thing, a whole new system. That That's the only thing that's going to work. Definitely. And uh, Ted Roll, uh, swinging back around to our ongoing conversation about uh, Trump and the Democrats' uh, sort of response to him, uh, you wrote a piece about this recently on your website, roll.roll.com, entitled Neither Democrats Nor Republicans Can Defeat Trumpism. And one point that you made that I thought was uh, very relevant that I think sort of gets um, glossed over is, I mean, the fact 
you know, like this notion that Biden and that Biden is trying to put out that, you know, Democrats, along with mainstream Republicans and uh, people that he called independents, should basically organize like um, uh, uh, an anti-fascist front against uh, the Trumpists. And while on the one hand, I do feel like there's an all out assault on Democratic rights happening in our country right now in terms of abortion rights, voting rights, so many things, obviously ongoing issues of uh, violent racism in a number of ways and and all these uh, sorts of things. But this notion that the Republican Party is somehow going to divorce itself from Trump, I think is just a fantasy. And so when you combine that with this just continuing failures on the part of the Democrats to actually uh, levy something against Trump in one way or another that would soundly defeat him, even though I feel like they've had an opportunity to do that literally from the time that he, uh, you know, declared that he was running. I mean, of course, they could have always not sabotaged Bernie Sanders for one. I mean, they could have uh, uh, went at, went after him with the appropriate legal uh, actions following January 6th. I mean, just a number of things. But no, they always uh, want to get into some nonsense. But, I, you know, I don't want to uh, get off into a rant about that, but just wanted to get your thoughts, you know, about this whole uh, notion about how the whole issue around Trump just seems to be fundamentally not understood seemingly in, um, you know, mainstream political circles. And as such, you know, all of the issues that Trump and uh, the Trumpist wing and that base is bringing basically go unchallenged. Well, that's right, Sean, and and I think that's why Trumpism is powerful, and uh, you know, and why it because because it fundamentally exposed uh, first and foremost the bankruptcy of the uh, mainstream Republican Party. Uh, Ted, you're you're breaking up a little bit there. We're going to try to get you uh, back situated, but uh, in the meantime, we have a caller on the line here. Tom, tell us what's on your mind. Uh, hello. Good afternoon. A um, couple things based on a comment I heard um, from uh, someone earlier, uh, just a few minutes. Um, you're right. There is no real organized left here that of of any consequence. Uh, there are no socialist parties uh, of any. You know, historically there are and uh, and were. Uh, but everything seems to revolve around, you know, sort of the the, uh, the left wing of the Democratic Party. What's necessary, though, for workers in America is to break with the Democratic Party. Uh, that means uh, a labor party, or and very and let it exp- and let you know th- that political life begin, uh, where where workers see that the Democratic Party has nothing to say to them, uh, and but in order to do that, well, they'll have to sort of get rid of the leadership of the trade unions, who are completely tied, uh, hook, line, and sinker. By you know, most of them are, are card-carrying members of the Democratic Party. Uh, they certainly fundraise them for for them for six months to a year before elections, and then when they break their promises, inevitably, like Barack Obama, like Joe Biden, like all of them, uh, you know, there's no there's no consequence. We need to do that. We need to break with the Democratic Party as as uh, and form parties of labor that will sift themselves out. And you know what? Once they, once that happens, the Republicans will win. <laughs> labor labor can handle the Republican Party. Stuff will grab some of them, some of them, you know, culturally or whatever. But they will, they have much more class interest in a, uh, 
in a in a militant uh, labor party than they do, you know, the Republicans just because of, you know, some cultural issue. Appreciate you calling in, Tom. I hope to hear from you again soon. I mean, yeah, I definitely agree. And we often say this on the show that ultimately there has to be a mass independent movement separate from uh, the uh, Democratic Party and really outside of um, the political mainstream itself, a mass movement of poor, working and oppressed people who are really fighting uh, for all of these issues that the same mainstream, really the the ruling class politics is what we're talking about, that these ruling class formations uh, uh, basically refuse to address because to do so, of course, would be to uh, betray their oath to uphold and protect um, this very capitalist system, which I think is precisely why over the last few years, we've seen a huge uptick in interest in socialism. We've seen people joining socialist and communist organizations and parties and anti-imperialist organizations and all these sorts of things. I feel like just about any uh, progressive group has seen a kind of real growth uh, over the last few years, precisely because of this. I mean, we're hearing uh, a critiques of capitalism, like in the George Floyd protest and the uh, uh, abortion rights protest all over. And I think that that's no coincidence. And I also don't think it's a coincidence that we mainly seen this coming from young people who are really feeling these things in in a very visceral sort uh, uh, of way. And of course, because of the history of uh, brutal uh, repression, incarceration, uh, uh, assassinations and uh, anti-communism in this country, I mean, that has a deep impact on uh, how the, on the state of the left in the U.S. And I think the only way to fix that is to continue to organize and to build these organizations and uh, build our movement so that that these uh, politics have the appropriate platform. But Ted, I think we got you back here. I wanted to let you uh, uh, finish your point there. Well, yes. Uh, thanks, Sean. I hope you can hear me uh, okay now. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, to Tom's point, I- I've actually, I'm really glad you brought it up because it's something that as of late, I've been thinking about a lot. You know, uh, Sean, you mentioned the class consciousness uh, piece of this, which is so crucial and critical. And I agree. And I feel, though, that we're really stymied uh, in trying to build, um, you know, a grassroots left movement in this country by the fact that, you know, building class consciousness seems to be so hard uh, due to the culture, the political history of this country uh, in a way that it's not as hard in, say, Europe and in, uh, you know, the global south and, and other places. And is some kind of radical rethinking of Marxism in the same way that, you know, Mao, uh, you know, completely subverted the idea, uh, Marx's idea, he updated it to say, okay, well, you know, we can, we can have communist revolution in an agrarian society. We don't necessarily, as Marx and Engels thought, have to uh, build a, uh, a, you know, we start with a capitalist society that and convert to socialism and then build toward communism. Maybe we can uh, start with a peasantry, a peasant class. And, and then, you know, Mao, that's Mao's, you know, great radical uh, contribution to 20th century thinking, really, political thought. And I wonder if it's possible for the United States and other countries where it's so difficult to spread class consciousness to somehow come up with a, an ideological workaround that would allow 
uh, people to uh, allow us to build a real left, a true left, not a you know like something bourgeois like the Democrats, uh, and and do that without necessarily having to overtly build class consciousness in the same way that you know we I think we've all kind of have always assumed that we needed to. Yeah, Jackie Lukman, your thoughts. Yeah, I mean that that's always like the 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 organizing tension like how do we build class consciousness across uh political lines across, you know, cultural lines, ideolog- uh, ideological lines and and I mean, I think Sean that for me having been around for a minute and having seen how people trip up over the cultural lines more than they probably do the political lines, because I think I've seen people easily shrug off their political you know, ideology when they realize, oh, my God, this political party, and it doesn't matter which party we're talking about, the Republicans or the Democrats, oh, my God, they're lying to us. They really don't care about us. They don't care if we die. So that that's easy. But but I've seen the the issue of, you know, the, the cultural Things like the, you know, the the racism and and sexism that stymies movements. You know, this this building of class consciousness. But I am encouraged always always by the history of the labor movement and the way the labor movement was able to do exactly that in an extremely racially and gender repressive environment in this country in the forties and the fifties and spread. Uh, not just uh, class solidarity, but communist, uh, uh, you know, grow the Communist Party in the United States of America. So, you know, while, while I do think it is possible, I'm always aware that we have to keep in mind of the pitfalls and be prepared to deal with them honestly and continue to press forward, Sean. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I um, I was thinking about what uh, Ted just raised, talking about uh, Mao Zedong and how we apply Marxism to the Chinese revolution. And I mean, I actually think that that's um, an example of what we saw revolutionaries around the world do, you know, during that, you know, uh, you know, great, very inspiring and brilliant period where we were seeing all of these um, revolutionary and progressive uh, movements and national liberation struggles taking place. A place across the world. It's like we saw in, uh, like we said, China, the Soviet Union, Cuba, Nicaragua, Grenada, Guinea-Bissau, you know, the, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, you know, certainly the Korean Peninsula, you know, all of this, right? And so everywhere we saw um, an attempt well, not even an attempt, everywhere we saw a revolution with a Marxist leadership, we saw that leadership apply Marxism to the particular conditions of that country in that time. And it's true that um, a lot of the countries that we saw engaged in these revolutions, they were not they were not in, you know, what we might call today the developed world. They were in the global south. They were in the third world and all these uh, sorts of things. So their conditions were different, certainly from each other, but also, uh, I think, from the conditions that Marx himself uh, sort of had in mind. And. Also, we have to understand that we'll have to do the very same thing here in the United States, because whenever you talk about socialism in the United States or having a revolution here in the U.S., 
you know, there are people that will say, oh, what does that mean? It will be like Cuba. Will it be like Venezuela or Nicaragua and so on and so forth? But in the same way that those revolutions happen and unfold on their own time and circumstances, it will be the same way in the U.S. And so when uh, this uh, revolutionary transformation of the United States takes place, and it will, we will need to compare that to what the U.S. Was You can only compare a country sort of to itself in that way, not to other countries under completely different circumstances in a completely different time. We can't compare uh, the United States to what happened in China in 1949 or Cuba in 1959 or Nicaragua in 1979 or the Soviet Union in 1917. And the list just goes on and on and on with these different things. Right. And so that is what I think we really have to bear in mind. You can't export revolution or put in a time machine. We have to build this thing for ourselves. But we're going to leave it there for today and this week here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Ted Rawls, so much for joining us today. We'll be back next week with an all-new slate of episodes. As always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.